Thanks, Lori. Have you ever um, have you ever tried to like watch a TV show from the other room? You know, like you're doing something, maybe you're cooking or cleaning or doing something else, and you try to kind of watch a TV show, but you're really just hearing the TV show. You don't actually see what's going on on the screen. Have you ever kind of done that? Um, how well did that work out for knowing what was happening in the show, right? Um, not super. So um, that's kind of how it is. If we're trying to do a, like a Bible study style teaching where we really get in the Word, if you don't have the Bible to put your eyes on and to work through it. So I want to welcome or invite you. We've got Bibles on the back um, uh, podiums. Also, you can go on your phone to uh, your Bible app or to gatewaybible.com if you'd like. And let's take a look at this passage together. When I was living in Arizona, so we're going back about 15 years, uh, I went to get my tires kind of balanced and rotated as you do at this particular tire shop. And there was kind of like an L-shaped uh, shopping center, you know, so there was like the big grocery store, a couple little stores, eateries, and then there was an arm of this center that went down this way with a couple other stores, and at the very end was the tire shop. So I took my car there, and I dropped it off for them to do it, and I decided I'd walk across diagonal through the parking lot to the grocery store, maybe get something to eat. I can't remember why I was doing that, but on my way over, somewhere around 20 feet from the kind of the corridor, the covering in front of the grocery store, there was shouting and running out of the front of the grocery store. Now, I didn't know what it was for about two or three seconds. Then I realized it was a man running with a couple bags and a gun. And there was two uh, security guards. They were actually uh, the armored cart. You know, one was uh, the, the guy that opens the back. The other looked like the, the security guard from the grocery store. They were hollering and kind of chasing after him, right? So instinctively, I just kind of ducked behind one of those pillars, you know, when you see gun that is, is holding up those. But, you know, uh, obviously, the curiosity jumps in. It all, this is all happening in split seconds. So it's jumping behind the pillar, and then you want to know, like, hey, what's going on out there like this? And let me tell you what I saw when I peeked out. What I could see clearly was the guy with the bags and his gun turn and fire. And one of the armor, the armored car guy went down. And a bunch of hollering. I decided that was the time to go back behind the pillar, right? And not look so much anymore. Um, that lasted a few seconds to look out. And then you heard this guy peeling out away and took off out of the parking lot. From the ground, though, this is what I saw. The security guard shooting at this vehicle as it's pulling out, right? That's the most exciting thing I think I've ever witnessed in my life in person like that. Now, it turns out that the security guard did actually hit the tire of this vehicle. And just about a half block later, half mile later, I should say, uh, that tire was flat. The car couldn't really move. And the police actually apprehended this person in an apartment complex where they were trying to hide out on the grounds, right? So I'm thinking... I just, I witnessed this whole thing. Like, I'm going to be, for the first time, I'm going to get to go to a court case. I'm going to get to sit up in that box and tell them what I saw. You know, being a big Law & Order TV fan, I thought this might be the greatest moment of my life, going to court, right? Well, it never happened. He didn't go to court. None of that happened. Must have, you know, pled out or something like that. Guy went to jail, that kind of thing. I missed my opportunity to be eyewitness on the stand, right, between the attorneys and whatnot, I was uh, disappointed with that. Um, John, John the Baptist in this story, 
will not miss his opportunity to, I, to testify, to give an account, to be a witness to this thing that is coming and that he has seen. That is his purpose. In this chapter, in the book of John, this character known as John the Baptist, not the same as the writer of John, that's what he does. Take a look back if you have your scripture from last week, one of the passages we looked at. This is about John. It says in verse 6, a man named John was sent from God. He came as what? As a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him every, everyone would believe in the light. That's John's purpose. That's why he's here to come and to testify about the light. And we talked about last week, John, through chapter 1, is introducing life, light, and equates it to Jesus. That's John's purpose in coming. That is a calling on his life to testify to Jesus. So we want to ask a question, who was John then? In fact, the religious leaders of the day wanted to know this as well. The religious landscape of the day was pretty tricky. There was three dominant religious systems that were going on. They all were centered around uh, being uh, Jewish people, Israelites. They all believed in the Old Testament. But how they interpreted how it should live out looked very different, these three different groups. At least two of these groups are probably coming to John at this point, and they want to know, all right, who are you exactly? What's going on here? What are you talking about? All they would have heard is up till now, there's some guy out in the wilderness, and he's baptizing with water. That was a, a religious ritual that showed up, right? Um, and he's making these almost prophetic-type statements about the kingdom of God and things like that. So check it out at the beginning of this passage. We see, uh, starting in verse 19, this is John's testimony to the Jewish leaders in, in Jerusalem. Why? Because they came and they asked, who are you in verse 19? So John's going to give a series of answers. And it's important what he says because the wrong answer could get him in trouble. Now, we know eventually John the Baptist got beheaded but the wrong answer could get him in trouble right here, right now. Or the way he gives the right answer could just cut off being able to share any more from the religious leaders. So that's what we kind of see. So the first question is, hey, are you the Christ? And John says, nope, that's not me. I'm not the Christ. What does that mean? Everyone was looking for the Messiah. Everyone who believed in the Old Testament, who believed in the law, whose history generations back came through the Old Testament, they were looking for Messiah. It was clearly predicted the one would come. And so everyone's looking for it. There were several times where they thought the Messiah had come. Judas Maccabees was one of the big ones, right? This was prior to Jesus, and there was an overthrow of occupation. And for the first time in a long time, the temple was open for worship for a while. And so it makes sense. People are like, hey, Judas Maccabees, he's the one that led the revolt. He must be the Messiah, right, to overthrow the oppressors. Well, nope, he died and that passed on. Others had popped up here and there. So they're always looking for this. So they asked John, are you? John says, nope, nope, not me, not me. What about are you one of the prophets or are you the prophet? 
Now, when they say this, they don't believe in reincarnation. It's not necessary that they're saying, are you Elijah, like, come back in another form? There was, there's another account that there's kind of a spiritual understanding that a prophet was coming back when they talked to Jesus. But this is, are you like the prophet? Do you carry the same message as the prophet Elijah or the prophet? And that's often referred to as Moses, their father. They're, he's their big guy, right? Abraham, Moses, those were the two big ones. And what does he say? Nope, that's not me either. And so then they, they say, well, who are you? We need to know. We need to give you a, an account of yourself. And this is what John says. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make the Lord's path straight, just as the prophet Isaiah said. What John chooses to do is instead of answering in his own words, he actually chooses to read a passage from Isaiah. You know it as Isaiah chapter 40 starts in verse 3 that he's reading this. But as they read this, they would understand Isaiah is the prophet that was crying out in the wilderness. And the whole, his whole journey, his prophetic message was to prepare your hearts because God is going to do something new. God is going to return you from exile back to your land, and God is going to do something new in your life. That was this message. Now, if you want to go read Isaiah, it's much, much longer than those two sentences I just said. Many, many more chapters longer. And it can be a little bit of a confusing journey to read through that. But often this is what would happen. When somebody would quote something, and you see this throughout the Gospels, when they'll quote one line, the whole thought is what people would think of. The whole passage, we know them as chapters and verses, but they wouldn't have had chapters and verses then. They would have thought this whole thought or this whole extended story, that is really what John is actually quoting. So when they say, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness, make the Lord's paths straight. If you read on, you will know in Isaiah 40 there, this is a passage about salvation. In fact, verse 6 says that direct in Isaiah. God's salvation has come for everyone. This is what John is crying out. This is what he's declaring. So he's saying, I am a voice. That's what I am, to declare that Jesus' salvation has come for everyone. Now, you may not think much of that word, everyone, but it shows up a few times in the Old Testament. And it reminds the people that this is not going to be just for the Jewish people. That's what God said to Abraham at the very beginning. This is going to be for all nations, for everyone. And John is declaring this is the time this is what I'm crying out. This is what I'm doing. So then they said, well, like, well, then why are you baptizing, right? If you're not these other prominent figures, Christ, prophet, why are you even baptizing? Well, John is testifying this way. How is he testifying would be the question. The first one is through his words, through his spoken words. He is saying these things. I'm crying out. In just a few verses later, he'll say, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like he is proclaiming with his words to other people. Well, we've actually said many times to you, if you want to be a witness to Christ, you know, live it out. 
right? We got to be genuine, real believers in Christ in our actions, in our deeds, and what we do. But at some point, you got to use your words. At some point, you have to speak Jesus to other people so they know the core of what makes you different, where you have found your hope and your joy is Christ. So John testifies with words. But then also, look at verse 26. He baptizes by water. Now, John is making a somewhat of a distinction here, but don't go too far with this distinction. We'll explain that in a moment. John's making a distinction. Look, I come to baptize with water. There's one who is coming later that'll baptize in the Holy Spirit, right? Now, some of us have gotten to the point where we said, oh, well, that means we don't need to be baptized in water. Let's get rid of that ritual altogether. We'll just be baptized in the Spirit. Um, we'll find Jesus is the one who actually speaks about water and, and Spirit and combines these things, uh, and we'll find that later in the book of John, so we won't get ahead of ourselves in that. So with his voice and with his water. So what is this water baptism doing? Well, what was Isaiah doing? What was Isaiah proclaiming? When Isaiah said that he was a voice crying out in the wilderness, make, way, make straight the paths of the Lord, and then John decided to quote that, what is Isaiah saying? He's saying this. We're in the wilderness, but you need to prepare yourselves for something new God wants to do. The old is going away. Prepare your hearts Make commitments before this because God wants to do something new. Now, if you really break down Isaiah, you'll see statements about don't take the old with you into the new. When God brings you out of the wilderness and into this promised land and he chastises them on some, some pagan practices that they had, had done, some synchronizing, which, which is blending of these two religious systems, a little bit of the Jewish Old Testament, a little bit of the pagan gods, and kind of morph those together. Isaiah actually speaks harsh on them. Don't return that with you when God does something new and delivers you from the wilderness. So as John is quoting Isaiah, John is basically saying, I'm, in, I'm saying the exact same thing, and I'm doing it through water. My baptism by water is basically to wash you of the, of the old and prepare you for the new. To wash away that old. And to set you up for the new that he's going to be testifying that Jesus will bring to your life. And so that's his message. Now, we get a little bit more of this in the book of Luke and in Matthew where there's, there's this story shows up there as well. In fact, we get the extension of him quoting Isaiah in uh, the Gospel of Luke. But basically what John is saying is, I am washing the old and preparing for the new, just like Isaiah was doing, preparing his people to return for the new that God wanted to do. That's the parallel that we see here. I wonder for you if you've thought about that. Maybe if you think back to your baptism, or if you can think back to we have over here, we take these chairs up, we put a baptismal. When somebody is being baptized, we declare a new life in Jesus Christ. But what we say is when they come out of the water, there is new life as, as sense of God wants to meet them and now lead them in life in a new and a fresh way. But that ritual of washing, what we're declaring is the old is gone, the new has come. 
The old is gone, and when you come up, new is ahead of you. It's right there for you. God wants to do something new. But the washing is a powerful symbol of getting rid of the old and bringing on the new. Where does this, this whole thought even begin? Well, do you remember the book of Exodus? We've talked about it a little bit here in our Sabbath series and, and a little bit last week where God sends Moses to say to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go so they can what? So they can worship. Pharaoh says, no, not going to happen. Somewhere along the line, he said, oh, okay, you can do it. No, 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 I changed my mind, right? At one point, they even got everyone together and started tracking out, and all Pharaoh's uh, you know, armies said, no, everybody back in, can't do it, right? And then eventually, you'll know, there was the Passover, where the firstborn was killed throughout the, the land of anyone who didn't put the shed blood over their doorposts. The exodus happens immediately afterward. They are delivered from Egypt, where they had been slaves, and they head on. But you remember there was something in their way, right? There was the Red Sea that needed to be crossed. No crossing of the Red Sea, no miracle that, God, that we know God did. That just means they butt up against the Red Sea and they get slaughtered, or they have to return as slaves. But God does a miraculous thing. What does he do? He opens the water and they pass through the water to the other side. The old that they had lived in Egypt, God says, I want to deliver you from the old. I want to deliver. That's old life. That was a life of oppression. It was a life of mixing in Egyptian gods and their thoughts. It's a life of commodity. We talked about that during our, our Sabbath series. I want to deliver you from that. And he brings them through the water to the other side. Now, they didn't get washed the same way as baptism, but the same imagery is there that they go through the water to the other side. This is how this whole concept of baptism begins. Going through the water, washing the old is done. Now, the, you'll know the Red Sea closed up, right? They're on the other side. Pharaoh, it didn't work out so well for him, right? Um, maybe there was a couple good swimmers. I don't know. But they made it to the other side. And what is now in front of them? What is now in front of God's people? The old was just taken care of. Pharaoh's gone. He's dead, right? Egypt is about to crumble. One of the greatest kingdoms is about to go nowhere. Why? Because their slave labor is gone. What is in front of the people? What God wants to lead them to. New life entirely. That's what this baptism is. That is what this washing of water is that John is bringing. We find actually in Exodus chapter 19 and 21, new life comes at Mount Sinai. You say, wait a second. Didn't new life come at the, the promised land once they got into the promised land? No. When they got to Mount Sinai, what happened? God gave them the law. God gave them a new way to live, a new way to look at life. God taught them how to live life that was them being obedient and following God. He taught them how to live among each other and what life among people looked like. All of this was new when God handed them the law. That was life. Even in the wilderness still, they weren't in the promised land yet, God gave them life right there 
But guess what else he, he gave them? And you may not be as familiar with this passage. Numbers 11, I'll let you kind of read some of that on your own. Read the whole chapter to get the context. But you'll see the two passages where it actually says that the Spirit of God descended on the leaders of the people who then turned to the people and led them. So this is pouring out of new life, but it is in the Spirit. That's the exact same thing that happens for us. This washing, the old is gone. And when we come out, look, what's ahead of us? The new. The new is ahead of us. But we don't have to walk it alone. God teaches us how to live as followers of Jesus, and he gives us the Holy Spirit as well. So we see this, how baptism shows up in, in Exodus, and it carries on through. What does it look like New Testament-wise? Well, we have this baptism by water, the same thing. It's dealing with the old. The old is gone. Let me just stop and make kind of a contemporary uh, commentary for just a second. Where we struggle today is you or I, we're in the same boat. We don't want anyone to think we're judging them, right? I mean, that is a kind of a dominant phrase in our culture. Don't judge me. Don't judge anyone else. And it would be true how you interact and deal with people. If you just want to be hypercritical all the time, the Bible actually says there, you know, if you judge, you'll be judged. Meaning, if you want to live a hypercritical life, go for it. It's coming right back on you. That's just how it works, right? But we need to remember the old, dealing with the old, looking at what the old is in our life, when it comes to our own sin, our own shortcomings, and things like that, that there is nowhere in Scripture that we get where there's any life transformation, there's anything new in God, in Christ, that does not involve dealing with the old. In other words, like, we can't have the new without dealing with the old. Now, here's where we've gone sometimes, is what we have thought that meant, dealing with the old, means if you're in an addiction right now, you better get totally free from that addiction or God doesn't want to have anything to do with you. If you're one that just lets the words fly all the time out of your mouth, you better clean up your mouth entirely. Then God will want to have something to do with you. That is not accurate, nor is it the, the, the view of Scripture. Confession is the word where we come and we realize this is who I am, this is the old, this is my deficiency. I need to confess this and surrender this and give this to God. And God says, oh, I am so happy to take that old from you. I'm so happy to take that. Let's go on to something new. Let me, let me give it to you a different way. That Maybe you know the word sin actually means miss the mark. That's kind of the, the, the definition. The word in Greek is harmatia. And so if you take that word, it simply means to miss the mark, right? But there's more to it that we need to understand. The miss the mark, is, is, it actually has kind of its understanding from the Exodus as well. Because the people said, we want to go worship in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, no, you cannot go worship in the wilderness, Right? And so what they felt like there was some separation from God, there was some form of worshiping God that they couldn't do because Pharaoh would not let them go. And so the term separation was attached to that. And so when we think about sin, missing the mark, think not just about, maybe not the mark, I missed it. Think about the separation 
between where we actually landed. The separation from the mark, wherever we hit, to the target. That is the understanding of sin. That there is this separation when we choose to go our own way or dis disobey God, live however we want. Sometimes it's not even disobeying God. Sometimes it's just, I'm not even cognizant of what God would even want. There's this missing the mark, and it creates this separation. You know what God says? I want to bring you back to the mark. I want to eliminate the separation for you entirely. So if I were to shoot at a target right here on the back wall and I missed it by 10 feet to the right, right, and Lori, who read the scripture great, decided I'm going to take that arrow and I'm going to put it on the bullseye for him. I'm going to, I'm going to eliminate that separation. Well, it doesn't mean on the next shot I'm going to nail it perfect in the bullseye, right? But if I come along with God and he starts to develop new within me, that separation starts to change. I start to get dialed in closer and closer and closer. Parents, do you love your kids? Do you love them? I think so. Nobody's nodding their head. Maybe I'm wrong. So, yeah, you love your kids, right? Do you love when they lie, cheat, and steal, right? I mean, maybe your kids have never done that, so, right? Do you love that? No, you can't stand that, and you're not going to let it stand. Not only that, it's not like you just continue on in your relationship with your kid as if nothing happened, right? They lied to you. Maybe they cheated on something. They did something. Who knows? It's not like you just roll on, just ignore it. Why? Because I love them. I just ignore it. No, you love them. That's not going to change. But you say, we got an issue here. We have a little relational separation going on here. And you need your kid to do what? You need your kid to say, I'm sorry, mom or dad. You might even have to come back and say, hey, I accept it. You're forgiven and you're grounded, right? And these things helped to eliminate separation. This is what God wants to do. This is the symbol of baptism by water. The old is being washed. It's being taken away. God loves you. He wants to eliminate your separation because separation hurts your relationship from God. Listen, Christians here today, just because you said a prayer a few years ago or maybe way back and said, Lord, forgive me of my sins, come into life, be the Lord of my life, right, does not mean any ongoing disobedience to God does not create some separation relationally. Now, I'm not saying you lose your salvation, right? You're still probably just as heaven bound as you were when you first made your commitment, but there is some separation. And God says separation, that's a big deal. So the old is gone, dealing with the old. Then there's this concept of baptism in the Holy Spirit. We get this in verse 33, shows up here. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to make new, through a new way of life, to be a follower of Jesus, right? Jesus teaches his disciples, he teaches us how to live, and we're empowered through the Holy Spirit. Jesus has something to give us that John the, John the Baptist baptism doesn't give. There's more to it is what John is declaring about Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowering you to live this new life, to live it out. Now, sometimes we mistake this as saying the Holy Spirit comes on me and I'm like, I'm good, I'm just good to go. In reality, it's 
we are still working at this thing called following Jesus, but the Holy Spirit empowers us to do something we couldn't on our own. Or he empowers us that something that otherwise would just be here on our own becomes something incredible. That is this new life that comes, and the new brings transformation. It makes us look at things different. I am 48. I am way more compassionate than when I was 28. And I became a Christian at 17, so it's not like I didn't have 11 years of Christianity under my belt. But the more and more I spend time with God, the more and more the Holy Spirit convicts my heart, teaches me. And sometimes I'm like, I get it, Lord. The Holy Spirit speaks to me, but I don't know how to do it. And God says, well, let me teach you how to do it. 20 years later, I'm far more compassionate to people. Whereas it used to be really hard if I didn't understand your situation to appreciate your situation. I just wanted to move on and say, you know, like, get over it, right? Or, you know, whatever. That's the Holy Spirit brings transformation in all ways in our life. In fact, if you said a prayer many years ago to become a Christian, and you declare that was the moment of transformation, and you roll on for 20 or 30 years, and you cannot point to moments of transition or transformation over the last maybe 10, 20 years, that's a problem. That's a way of stepping out and in being directed towards the new, but not receiving it. Almost like in the wilderness, when the people were given the new, some decided to move forward and to grumble and complain and not live out the new. In the end, it didn't work very well for them because they didn't get to go into the promised land. So sometimes we sacrifice the new that God wants. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us. So we actually find in chapter three, or chapter three, verse five, God's having this, or excuse me, Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, a religious leader. We're going to go through that down the road, so I'll, I'll hold. And he talks about being born again. Do you remember that? But he describes it this way: being born of the water and of spirit. And this understanding from Exodus shows up again in Isaiah. This understanding that the, the washing of the water is the releasing the old. It is the confession, washing away the old. But being also born of the Spirit means we're being changed by the new. We're being transformed into something we were not before because of the Holy Spirit that Christ offers our lives. Here's a takeaway, this statement I want you to, to hear. You can't bring the old along and expect the exper to experience the new Jesus has to offer. Can't bring it along. Now, God is tremendously patient, and he'll work to transform us, and it doesn't always happen in the snap of a finger. But I can't just say, I'm going to just carry along all that old, that old way of thought, that old way of acting, that old way of speaking. I'm just going to bring that in, but now I go to church, so I guess I'm rolling in this Christianity thing now. No, somewhere along the line, God is saying, let's release the old. Let's confess. Let's dump the old and clear up all the space for the new I have to offer your life. Here's what we're seeing there in your takeaway. One is the word confess. Maybe that's what you need this morning is just to confess. 
to remember that sin is an issue, and just to confess that separation does happen when we miss the mark, and just to confess that, Lord, that was me. Living in a culture where the term confessing or declaring or acknowledging your own wrongdoing, uh, that's slipping away culturally for us. But to start by confess, Lord, wash me clean. Wash me clean. In fact, as Christians, sometimes we think of this as a one-time deal. That time we said that prayer, we should wake up every morning and confess. Every morning, Lord, wash me clean. Don't get it confused that when you d you're saying that, it means I have no salvation. I've lost my salvation. I'm not going to heaven. Wash me clean now. Oh, I'm back in, right? And you got to do that every morning. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the relationship and any separation that my own selfishness might lead me to. Lord, wash me clean. Confess. The second is to receive. Lord, fill me up now. When you wash me clean, you've created space to fill me up with you, to fill me up with new thought and new understanding and new action. That's what he wants to fill us with. I mean, if you've ever taken a cup and it had some dirty water in it, and you're like, I want a clean cup of water. Did you ever just pour clean water into that dirty cup of water and just start drinking, saying, wow, that is the cleanest, freshest water? I've... No, it's, that would be stupid, right? It doesn't make any sense. You dump that out. You probably wash the cup. If some of you are really nervous about the germs, you might run it through the dishwasher. I don't know what you do. Then you fill up clean water and you have your drink. Just think about the same type of thing. God wants to fill us up. Confess, wash me clean. And now there's this space for God to fill us. But then there's this holdup sometimes. And I want to challenge you. The third thing is to believe. To believe. Lead me in your ways. What did we talk about last week? What was the challenge? To ask ourselves the question, what is or has been the point of challenge in your belief? The third thing was a reminder to believe. God, lead me in your ways. And God might come and say, here's one of my ways I want to lead you in. And that might take some faith. It might take some challenge, some trust to step out. Confess, wash me clean, Lord. Receive, fill me up, Lord. And believe, lead me in your ways. I want to pray for you this morning. And I want to specifically pray, and I want to lean on that first one. If there be anything you come in with this morning, that you've just had, like, I, I don't even hear the concept of confess all that much in the church world anymore, and you want to declare and confess before the Lord, then you do it privately. You don't have to come forward. We don't, you know, we don't have a place where you go and confess to me. You can go straight to the Lord and confess before him and say, Lord, wash me clean. Wash me clean. He's never failed to say yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the testimony of, of John. Lord, it's, in some terms, it's a hard testimony. John is declaring, John the Baptist is saying to people, you need to be washed clean. John is declaring to some people, Lord, your, your selfishness has led you on a path that actually pushes God's ways out. You need to be washed clean. Lord, we fall in that camp sometimes. Maybe this morning, somebody in here just needs to say, Lord, wash me clean. Confess whatever you need. Whatever selfishness, whatever sin, 
Whatever has snuck its way in to become a, a habit. Whatever you've said that, that you've kind of been lulled into the concept, that's really no big deal. Or that's not as bad as someone else. But it's creating some separation in your relationship with God. Now would be the time. Just confess it for, before the Lord. You don't need any emotional arm twisting. Just confess before the Lord. Tell him, wash me clean. He's never not said yes. Father, would you hear them all? Would they know and walk out of here knowing that they have been washed new, they have come up out of the water again, and the new you have to offer them today is in front of them. They choose to receive it and, and move forward with it. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.